I love a good podcast, as you know, and I'm always happy to share resources for parents who are looking for creative, smart content that both entertains and offers enrichment for curious kids everywhere. So I'm happy to let you know about this awesome new show from the creators of the hit kids podcast, Who Smarted, and Netflix's Brainchild, The Adventurous World of Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as Math. Every episode follows Max and Molly, who have just been recruited into a secret order of problem solvers on an adventure through time, packed with puzzles, hidden equations, history, and laughs. The series explores themes that kids like ours love, like the stories behind math, critical thinking, code breaking, pattern solving, and more. And episodes transport kids into iconic periods in history like Pythagoras's Ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England. So cool. New episodes drop every Thursday and are about 15 minutes long, a perfect length for those car rides, for meal times, for break times, and bedtimes. What I love about this show is that it's kind of like listening to a book on tape. The story is captivating and includes lots of problems listeners can try to solve. The voice actors are fantastic, and the math concepts are seamlessly weaved into the narrative. It's exactly the kind of show Ash would have loved a few years ago, especially during our homeschool years, because finding that perfect blend of entertaining and educating, it isn't always easy. So tune into Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. I'm so grateful for this, that it's becoming normalized to have like dry January, to take a little bit of a breather and reassess our relationship to substances. That's something I think it's going to be important to do before you even start to think about how you're going to talk to your kids about their use. Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber. Today, I'm bringing you an important conversation about alcohol and substance abuse. In almost five years of podcasting, I've only covered this topic once so far, yet I know this is a pressing issue for parents of differently wired kids, as several studies have linked neurodivergence with higher rates of alcohol and substance addiction. Well, it just so happens that friend of the show and all-around amazing human Jessica Leahy has written a brand new book, The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. As a recovering alcoholic herself and having taught in a rehab center for adolescents, Jessica wanted to better understand how to inoculate her own children against their own addiction inheritance. After delving into the current research and her own past, the result is a vulnerable and powerful resource for all parents, teachers, and caregivers. I was able to receive an advanced copy of Jess's book and had so many aha moments while reading it. I can't recommend it highly enough. I wanted to talk to Jessica specifically about the link between neurodivergence and addiction, something I know is a concern for many parents of differently wired kids, and that Jessica has seen firsthand in her teaching experience. We talk about why that is, what parents need to know, as well as her best strategies for when and how to talk to kids about alcohol and drugs. You might be surprised by some of her research findings and her advice. So many great nuggets in this one. I hope it gives you a lot of food for thought. And a quick note before that, that next week I am going to be celebrating the five-year anniversary of Tilt Parenting with episode 250 of this show. 
please help me celebrate by subscribing to this podcast or leaving a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, follow Tilt Parenting on social media, share this show and Tilt Parenting with friends and family and educators and other people in your community who would benefit. Basically, just help me continue to grow this thing. And as always, thank you so much just for being on the other end of this conversation. I am so grateful to be on this journey with you. And now here is my conversation with Jessica Leahy. Good morning, Jess. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I love this podcast so much. Thank you. And you know what? I was actually, um, I think I was just seeing when I had you on last and it was almost four years ago, which is... Was it really? Yeah, it was 2017, which is surprising to me. I feel like we've lived many lifetimes (laughs) between then and now. From the time that Gift of Failure came out to now has gone so fast, mainly because I've been on the road traveling a lot and a lot's been going on. And you know, it was funny before I figured out what I was going to write about for my second book. I remember talking to, um, actually, it was Susan Kane who wrote Quiet. And she said, uh, I said, you know, I'm feeling some pressure to write the next book. And she's like, why? And I said, because I'm feeling some pressure. And she said, from anyone other than you? And I said, <laughs> no, just me. <laughs> and she said, well, sometimes it's good to just live in the content that you worked so hard to put together and are still exploring and still teaching to people and let that be enough. And so it was nice actually to sort of sit back and and get to teach really yeah. for, for the years in between that book and this new book. Well, and I just imagine too, the gift of failure is still, well, I know that it's still incredibly relevant and it it's probably something you get emailed to, to speak about all the time still, right? But I do. And the interesting thing is there's all sorts of new research coming out about not just the parenting style stuff, but how disparate attention paid to students affects school budgets, affects how we, um, you know, even if we don't think that we're treating students differently when one set of parents has the power to come in and demand a lot of attention or resources or whatever, and another parent just doesn't feel like they're in a position to have that kind of power, then we disproportionately meet out our attention and our resources and all of that stuff. And it really affects the equity in schools. Mm -hmm. And and that research is fascinating. And so, you know, as we sort of look at, for example, how gift of failure applies when our kids are home all the time, Mm -hmm. or when we're sort of the ancillary teachers, or whatever the situation is, there are all these new applications that, of course, when I wrote gift of failure, I couldn't possibly have predicted or, or even thought about. So, the nice thing is um, the last five years of my teaching life were spent teaching in a drug and alcohol rehab for adolescents. And one of the things that's generally true about that situation is that not only do the kids generally not want to be in rehab, they really, really, really don't want to be in school in rehab. So all of a sudden, five years of for five years of teaching, engagement was pretty much the only thing I focused on. Like, how do I engage these kids that do not want to be a part of learning right now? And that was fantastic for me because now during COVID, when kids are feeling like, why does this even matter? I'm not even there. Who cares? That engagement piece has become increasingly a big part of what I talk about. Yes, things are changing. And I hope they don't ever go back to the way they were. I hope we take all this information with us and 
change for the I think, better. I think there's going to be some permanent changes that happen. I'm a, but I'm always optimistic. I'm just like this eternal education optimist and just sort of hope that we're heading in the right direction. Yeah, that's awesome. All right. Well, we could obviously keep talking about this uh, <laughs> for a long time, but I want to talk about your new book. It's called The Addiction Inoculation, uh, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. And you know, you just mentioned that you spent the past five years working um, with kids who were in a rehab. I'd, I'd love to know, you know, as a writer, when did you know that this was going to be your next book? And when did you really start working on it and make that pivot? Well, out of that conversation I'd had actually with Susan Kane, I had been, you know, one of the things I think the, a writer, we writers often do is, okay, we file a piece and then we're like, okay, what's next? What do I have to do next? Because as writers, you know, we're only as generally speaking, unless you are able to be out on the road speaking, and I'm very fortunate in that we're generally only as relevant as whatever we wrote last. And so I was constantly thinking, what's next? And the sophomore slump thing is real and scary, really scary, especially when your first book, you know, my first book had like this big 14 publisher editor bidding war. And, you know, how am I supposed to top that? What what on earth can I do to sort of at least create something that um, that I'm proud of and that, you know, meets expectations? And so I think that was actually really a stumbling block for me for a long time. And my agent actually told me that, first books can happen really quickly because you've you've been thinking about it for a really long period of time and all these ideas have been coalescing and no one saw that process. That could have been going on for 10 years. But the second book, everyone starts asking, what's your next book? Almost immediately. And there's a lot of pressure. And and I proposed all kinds of things that were like, eh, fine. Like I, I, queer, I gave my agent all kinds of ideas and she's like, mm, not yet. That's not it. But, you know, we're closer, whatever. And I was driving down to, and I had been teaching at the rehab, I guess, for about two or three years, assuming I would not write about that. Like I wrote about it for the New York Times and um, just the experience of asking kids who had gotten into the weeds of substance use disorder, like what any adult in their most receptive moment could have said to them that might have made them think differently about substance abuse. But I had no, no thinking that I was going to write a book about it. And then I was driving down to Boston um, for an event and I had to pull over off the side of the highway because all of a sudden, all of the ideas I'd had that were eh, not quite sort of coalesced into one thing. And I even texted my two podcast hosts and my two best friends, KJ Delantonia and Serena Bowen, and I said, I got it. And like the, the title was there, the book was there. And actually, at first, it was going to be about prevention and treatment. And my agent said, look, you know, let's just do the prevention stuff. Um, there's a whole book there. And that's where you as a researcher can really shine. And so, you know, it, it once it happened, it happened really fast, but it also took five years to sort of get there. But, you know, along the way, the students I was teaching, they were just, it was the best teaching experience of my entire life. I knew that. And I knew if I was going to write more about teaching, it was going to have something to do with the fact that it doesn't always look like A's and it doesn't always look like all my students getting a five on the advanced placement English exam or that the rewards I was getting from teaching these kids was so much bigger than any, um, you know, hoity-toity private school teaching experience I had before. Mm. So there was something there. I just didn't know what, mm. what it was until it just all went chink, chink, chink. All the little pieces came mm -hmm. together. I love that. 
I did actually write about it for creative nonfiction. I wrote about one of the writing assignments that I do. It's called I've Taught Monsters, and it has to do with the assignment, obviously, not the kids. And um, that was really great. But I also sort of felt like I didn't just want to tell the kids stories. I wanted there to be some bigger purpose for talking about these kids. Mm -hmm. They've been used enough. You know, there's no reason to exploit them for the purposes of just telling fun stories, which Mm -hmm. there are plenty of them that I've never told. Um, I wanted there to be a bigger purpose for it. Can you tell us then, just um, before we get into, I have some specific questions about the book, which I I had a chance to read, um, and I think is fantastic and very personal, and it's just a really powerful book. So can you tell us, give us the broad overview about what readers would expect to find in your book? So it's a it's a really I like writing books that cross categories and this is a cross category book mainly because it's very much a memoir. You know, I'm I have by the time the book comes out, God willing or whatever willing, I will have 7 years. Um I'm almost there. Um I'm sorry, I will have 8 years by the time the book this com- this book comes out and so it's the story of that recovery. It's the story of, well, what do I do now with my, you know, about my own kids? My husband and I both have substance abuse on both sides of our family, big time. So how do we, you know, what part does that play? I, I didn't know what the genetics, you know, what percentage of risk and all that sort of stuff it plays. So what do I do with my kids? Do I have to do something different than people who have no substance abuse in their history I don't know. What's their school doing? Their school is supposed to be doing something too, right? Isn't there like a program at their school? Um, I don't know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Is what schools are doing, is it even based on any evidence? Or is it just kind of like I'd heard that, you know, kids who took D.A.R.E., the like 80s dare to keep kids off drugs, that their risk of using um, drugs and alcohol actually went up? Have we we done something about that? I Mm -hmm. had no idea. And then I also wanted to talk a little bit about as a parent how I talk to my own kids about my own substance use and I don't keep that a secret and it's very much out there because you know a lot of what I had experienced and a lot of what uh, people talk about in substance abuse memoirs is um, just gaslighting and secrets and secrets are really toxic and keep us sick and there's all sorts of research outside of substance abuse on that as well um, my husband is a HIV doc and there's a study that shows that uh, people who keep their HIV status a secret have poorer outcomes than people who are out with their HIV status. And, um, you know, when controlling for a lot of other factors, it seems to be that that secrecy and shame makes us sicker because it affects our immune system. So uh, what does that do to kids? So it was really for me, it's memoir, but it's also an evidence-based guide to parenting and teachers and coaches. There's a lot of stuff in there about sports and colleges and how to essentially, if you picture addiction risk as uh, scales, those old timey scales, you know, if your kid has a lot of risk factors, I just wanted to give parents the ammunition to raise the risk factor, make the risk factor side as heavy as possible. Um, The more risk we know about, the more honest we are with ourselves in evaluating risk, the better we can heap protections on kids. And I wanted kids to... I wanted to prevent kids from ending up in my classroom because I was seeing the same stories and the same risk factors and the same situations over and over and over again. And but that's anecdotal evidence, right? I'm not I didn't do any controlled, you know, double blind studies. I just watched. And yet 
over and over and over again, I could predict um, what the risk factors for my students would be. And thank goodness, um, the, the ACEs study, the Adverse Childhood Experience Study, is becoming, thanks to a bunch of writers who have written about it, um, it's becoming something that people actually know about, and it's a huge factor for substance abuse risk. So I wanted to talk about adverse childhood experiences as well. So lots of different things. That's the broad strokes of the book. Um, lots of stories. With, and it's my favorite way to write, which is, you know, data in an accessible way couched in a story, because storytelling is how we learn from each other. Yes, for sure. It's my favorite way to learn, for sure. My favorite way Absolutely. to read. And it's hard. It is not easy to write that cross genre uh, book and have that and strike that right balance. And I think you yeah. really do. Yeah. Well, and from a writing perspective, I had plenty of chapters that were done from a data perspective, but I just didn't have the story yet. So mm -hmm. they sat there in a folder while I worked on other stuff and I figured out what those framing stories would be. Mm -hmm. We'll be right back after this quick break. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body. And so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. So in our house these days, Darren and I have been working together to up-level our nutrition and healthy lifestyle habits. Maybe it's our age, our changing bodies, my shifting hormones, whatever the reason, I'm here for it. And that's why I'm loving Green Chef, a meal company that makes eating well easy with plans to fit every lifestyle. Green Chef offers gut-friendly recipes each week and is committed to providing a holistic approach to nutrition by offering meals that contribute to the overall well-being of your entire body. Darren and I are particularly big fans of their nutrient-dense, science-backed gut and brain health recipes, developed in partnership with registered dietitians that improve digestion, reduce bloat, and also boost energy and immunity. This week's favorites, turkey, black bean, and sweet potato chili, and the Baja chicken bowls with mango salsa. I mean, don't those sound delicious? But if that's not your thing, you can choose from a variety of customized meals to suit your lifestyles with preferences like keto, vegan, vegetarian, fast and fit, Mediterranean, gluten-free, and protein-packed. Whatever you choose, you'll get farm-fresh ingredients, organic whole fruits and veggies, and premium proteins, along with chef-crafted, nutritionist-approved recipes delivered straight to your door. Go to greenchef.com slash 60tilt and use code 60tilt to get 60% off plus 20% off your next two months. That's 60% off plus 20% off your next two months when you use the code 60TILT at greenchef.com slash 60TILT. 
Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. And so I will say, you know, I come from a family where substance abuse is not really prevalent on either side. And so it's something I think about just because of my, you know, experimentation in high school and college. Mm -hmm. And I happen to have a teen who has zero interest in any of that. So it's not not something that I think about um, a lot. And then in reading your book, I just was struck by how how this is just critical for every family, no yeah. matter what your your history is, your family dynamic is, because it's really also just about values. It's about how yeah. you show up as a parent, the conversations you have. And I'm wondering, um, like one of the things that jumped out for me, we had lived in Europe for a number of years, and there's a whole mentality there around alcohol. And, mm-hmm. you know, you just have your child has a drink at the table with you when, you know, you don't make a big deal out of it. I'm wondering what kind of surprised you as you were writing this in terms of families' values around alcohol and, and how they incorporate it or talk about it in their lives. Well, I was, as I was writing this book, the, um, so the monitoring the future study comes out every single year talking about, um, kids, attitudes towards substance use. And we can see from that survey how um, teen use is going, essentially. And it's been going down for a long time. And that's great. And so, you know, there was a lot to celebrate. This was like two years ago. There was a lot to celebrate in the survey results. But the American Academy of Pediatrics came out with a their own little statement on the survey saying, this is fantastic. But we have to stay focused because a lot of what we're doing uh, in terms of our parenting, in terms of how we approach things as physicians is um, based on sort of this wishful thinking or, or you know, the way we'd like things to be. And part of that, um, and they didn't write about this, this is sort of extrapolated out, has to do with this, um, if we're more like the French and we're just laissez-faire about our drinking, then somehow we will raise moderate drinkers. And it turns out that is so exactly wrong First of all, this fantasy that we seem to have about if my kid has a sip or if my kid has, um, you know, some watered down wine like the French do, then there'll be this attitude of, oh, it's just wine. It's no big deal. And so when our kids, American kids, go off to college or have their first, you know, drinks of alcohol in as, actually, as the research shows, in middle school, not in high school, I'm, I, even I do it. I'm like, oh, when they start drinking in high school. No, no, no. Most kids will have their first taste in middle school. So if we're waiting until middle school to start talking about the stuff, we're waiting too long, that somehow like we won't have these binge drinkers because they'll be like, oh, it's just alcohol. It's no big deal. I'm allowed to have it around the house all the time. Um, that just doesn't hold. And if you look at the data from um, Europe, I mean, Europeans have the highest levels of alcohol abuse in the world. And France has just had to change their thinking and make their official limits on the amount of alcohol that people should consume during the week. Um, They've had to lower those. And there's been a lot of resistance to that. And if you look at what works and what doesn't work, what works is Having an attitude of abstinence in the home for kids, you know, it's illegal. Kids shouldn't drink till they're at least 21, and here's why, and talking about how the brain works. But P.S., talking about how the brain works is good for kids no matter why you're doing it, whether it comes to learning, whether it comes to, you know, it's okay that you forget things occasionally, sweetie, because that's where your brain is right now, and let me explain how that works. But for substance abuse, the brain is so delicate and so plastic and so so sensitive to outside environmental factors that if we can just 
keep kids abstinent as long as possible, whether that's 18, 21, you know, I'd, it would be great if we could keep them abstinent that long. It'll affect the brain less. It'll do more less damage to the brain. The, and there are places like, for example, New Jersey has an exception in its laws around religious exemptions for alcohol um, consumption. And so a lot of parents will use that rule if they were to provide alcohol in, and it's not for religious uses, if they were to provide like a keg for the keg party, um, they will often use that religious exemption. Um, uh, there's a bunch of cases of this. And that thinking is just altogether upside down and backwards. It does not work. It increases the chance that your child will have substance use disorder over their lifetime. It does not work to create wonderful laissez-faire European drinkers. And by the way, there aren't a lot of laissez-faire European drinkers. Europe seems to have a, a big problem with alcohol abuse. Mm -hmm. And so we just need to, we need to smash that myth right there to smithereens. Yeah. I mean, and it surprised me, honestly. I was like, wow. And yeah, I totally see that. Like I just hadn't <laughs> made that connection. So thank you for that. Um, I want to talk about differently wired kids and alcoholism. Um, I know that there are studies that show high incidences of alcoholism within differently wired people. There have been studies that show a strong connection between ADHD and drug abuse mm -hmm. and alcoholism. Are there specific approaches that parents of differently wired kids might employ uh, when inoculating <laughs> our, our differently wired kids against having problems with drugs and alcohol? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things we can do. Number one, you're totally correct. And in fact, Gabor Mate has a whole book about ADHD and, and substance use. And, you know, having gone down that rabbit hole, it, it's really an interesting field because people have different ideas. Researchers have different ideas about what causes um, people to go on and have substance use disorder, whether it's a develop. Some people think it's developmental because, you know, as we know with adolescents, there's, um, their frontal lobe is not finished cooking yet. And so they um, just don't have as much sort of impulse control around those things. And they and their dopamine levels at baseline are lower. And so they crave more sort of ex novel experiences. So I kind of like that developmental model, because actually, um, there's a lot of research to show that, you know, kids can use if kids are going to use during adolescence, that that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to carry that into adulthood with them. Once their frontal lobes kick in, that can be and it can also be situational. There's the trauma camp. Gabor Mate is in the trauma camp that essentially trauma turns on our need to self-soothe or self-medicate for traumas. And that trauma net can get really big. I mean, I was at a talk with Gabor Mate one time and he started talking to this woman. She's like, well, I don't feel like I have any trauma really that would have triggered my use. And he started talking to her and like he was able to, he came up with like, okay, well, that time when you blah, 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 that's your trauma. That's possibly what caused it. So everyone can go a little bananas, I think, in expanding their nets. But when it comes to differently wired kids, this is a thing. This is real for a couple of reasons. So risk factors, some of the bigger risk factors for substance use disorder during your lifetime. Yes, trauma is one of them. Uh, if you look at adverse childhood experiences, um, that provides a really great list of the big risk factors, um, abuse in the home, that kind of stuff. But academic failure, falling behind academically is a really big risk factor, mainly because it can cause so many of the other risk factors to happen, like social ostracism, feeling stupid. I, I always had at least one or two kids in my rehab classroom with ADHD or ADD and, um, and dyslexia. Oh my gosh, there was always someone there with dyslexia. And what they would say to me was, 
I was just always told I was stupid or I don't read like my biggest goal was always to get a book in their hands and find something that they wanted to read. And um, many of them said, you know, I have a problem with reading. I don't read uh, period and just shut down. That's it. It's mm-hmm. this is not for me. And so many of them had social ostracism. So many of them were told that they were stupid. So many of them had low expectations for their academics. So many of them were closed out from having social conversations around books. I mean, you know, the Harry Potter series was like a global phenomenon. And yet so many of these kids, because they thought reading wasn't for them, were closed out of that cultural conversation and felt even more alienated by that. Um, so early intervention for reading stuff. And in the past, I've written in various articles that there's sort of a balance to be made about, um, I wrote an article based on the book, Leo, the Late Bloomer, because I've always loved that book mm-hmm. so much, about that balance between not pushing them too hard and not being impatient when our kids aren't reading. So having that balance, I think, is going to be really important. But also, you know, asking those questions. Are you, teacher, are you getting nervous about the fact that my kid still can't read? Or are you getting nervous about um, his tendency to disrupt classroom behavior and get all the other kids off track? And then meeting with the teacher, meeting, and I talk a lot about school counselors and school nurses and their ability to direct you toward resources that can be really helpful, especially for people who need sliding scale pay and that kind of stuff. Um, but the social ostracism and then early aggression is a really big risk factor be- often because it then can go turn into social ostracism. So the early aggression, um, early learning issues, social ostracism, those are sort of the big three. And you can see how those self-perpetuate each other. Mm-hmm. So if we see that happening with our kids, especially the early aggression, I think it's going to be really important from a danger perspective, of course, to seek outside counsel about how to best help our kids. Because much of that can be addressed, not just through individual help, but also really good social emotional learning programs in schools. And spoiler alert, if you read the addiction inoculation, you'll find that much of what I prescribe, much of what I help schools toward is really good social emotional learning programs. Because that right there, that's the secret sauce, not just for differently wired kids, but for all kids. Because that's where not only are they learning the traditional SEL stuff, but they're learning early refusal. They're learning how to self-advocate. They're learning how to speak up for themselves and get the help they need or the things they need. So differently wired kids, I think it's really tough to balance our need to want to do everything for and fix immediately. But there is some level of urgency to get them help and to feel like adults have their backs no matter what. And not because we're disappointed in them that they're not, you know, getting all A's and that kind of stuff, but because we want to be there for them Mm. um, because those things can very easily snowball. And then once they've started to snowball, it can be very difficult to figure out what's the main problem? Is it the social ostracism versus the aggression versus the academic problems? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the earlier, the better early intervention. I wanted to ask you about in terms of age, you said, if you're waiting till middle school, you're waiting too long. So when do you recommend parents really begin? And how do they begin having these conversations? If they're listening to this podcast, they've got kids in maybe elementary school, early middle school or beyond. Um, and maybe this is not once come up. I mean, I will say mm-hmm. that in reading your book, that's when we had conversations at the dinner table. Oh, I'm reading this really amazing book by my friend Jess. And this is what she said. What do you think? Like, that's when we started our conversation. I've got a 16 year old. So um, how do we start these conversations yeah. and, and when? 
Just jumping back when you said, if you're waiting till middle school, you're waiting too long. That was not about their interventions. This is about starting to talk to kids about substance use. Mm -hmm. So starting to, we don't with start with starting to talk to kids about substance use. We start by talking to kids when they're sitting there, you know, hypothetically in the bathroom with us while we're brushing our teeth and their medication sitting on the counter and a kid is just starting to learn how to read and you ask them to read, uh, you know, can you find any of the letters in mommy's name or in your name? Let's say the medication is for the kids kid. And that's an amazing opportunity to say, you know, the reason your name is on this medication is because you're only supposed to, we only take medications that are, that are prescribed for us. Sometimes like mommy could even have the exact same medication as you do because we have the exact same illness, problem, infection, but they're two very different amounts. So we would, we couldn't just switch these two bottles. So, you know, these little, and, and why we brush our teeth, we tell kids to brush their teeth, but do you tell kids it's because there's bacteria on their teeth? Kids crave wise. I mean, you know, that whole, because I told you so parenting thing doesn't work mainly because kids crave the why. And especially as they get older and, you know, not that toddlers don't, I mean, toddlers are all about the why and we can only go so far. But these sort of caring for our bodies and speaking up for ourselves and saying, no, that doesn't feel good, or um, no, I can't take that medication because it ha- it doesn't have my name on it, or and why we don't swallow toothpaste, or why do we only put soap on the outside of our body and not the inside of our body? Why does mommy keep the, uh, why does daddy keep the, you know, the laundry detergent pods up on the top shelf and not down on the bottom shelf? Um, all of these conversations about what's good for us and what's not good for us is all precursor or to a discussion of that first time we see a movie that has drug and alcohol use in it. And there's a section in the book about how much media, how much advertising our kids get around substances and how much, not just advertising, but, um, you know, use in films and television shows, in cartoons even. There's Mm -hmm. a ton of reference. Every time you see, and it's not as much anymore, obviously, we've, but if you look at the cartoons we used as kids, the time you saw characters in those drinking was, you know, something bad happened, drink a big bottle of, of, you know, a bottle that said, you know, had a little um, skull and crossbones on the Mm -hmm. front of it. Um, That like why we drink, why in the show do you think that that, you know, especially around things like mommy culture, that mommy drinking culture thing, like, Mm -hmm. why do you think that this woman is saying that, you know, she needs a drink at the end of the day after being home with her kids all day? Or I was at a, a bookstore And there was a set of glasses that says, I teach, therefore I drink. And number one, what does that say to our kids about their teachers? It says that it's all suffering and therefore we have to drink to deal with it. There's so many layers to that messaging. Um, But having all of these conversations along the way as we notice things. And yes, I tend to notice things more because mommy culture, mommy wine drinking culture, you know, wine glasses, sippy cups on top just gets me a little irked because it it's normalizing the idea that we have to drink in order to deal with our children. And, mm-hmm. you know, I belong to multiple groups on Facebook and other places that are about, you know, women who are trying to get better and trying to um, get into recovery, either mostly from pills, a lot of them from drinking. And uh, that culture can be really toxic for those people and really can keep their drinking going. So talking to it about kids all the way through is really important along with, and you start, and in the book, I, I lay it out really, really step-by-step. Step. Here are some scripts even from smoking through, you know, marijuana legalization. There's a lot to talk about and they're listening when the news is on. So having those conversations, it, they can happen naturally for listening for those moments, but mm-hmm. they don't start with drugs and alcohol. They start with toothpaste and mm-hmm. why we 
wash our bodies and, you know, that kind right. of stuff. It's about health generally. Yeah. I'm thinking of the Tintin books, which they're, I can't remember the character, mm-hmm. but the captain or the, he's perpetually got a yeah. bottle in his hand and is drunk <laughs> the entire time. Yeah. And that's a favorite. There's actually this one book that I bought. I, I When I start to research a book, I essentially, my advance goes to books. I mean, I buy every <laughs> book I can find. And there actually is somewhere in my bookshelves. The, oh, here it is. I am holding in my hands a book. You're going to love this. A book called Stony the Pony, teaching children about addiction through metaphor. And it's essentially about a pony who becomes a little bit crazed by those mints that we give ponies sometimes. And all of his friends are like, dude, you have a problem with those mints. And <laughs> and, and he experiences pony ostracism from his friend. I mean, it's just, it's oh very God. funny. But it's also, that's kind of beside the point. And it's cute. And I'm glad someone went to that effort. But really, it's about talking about health and talking about what's good for our bodies and what's bad for our bodies. And that includes a discussion about how our brains are growing and how you know, the things that kids find difficult, like whether that's impulse control or moderating their sugar intake is is part of growing up, that that's a part of how our brains develop. And and someday when they're, when they're big, when they're going to be adults, that that will become easier for them, but their brains are still developing. And that's mm-hmm. an important part of teaching them about themselves too. Yeah. And for differently wired kids, we know that they I mean, we know the frontal lobe, I think 25 is around the age when it's fully baked. And for for differently wired kids, it may be even longer because their timeline is a little different. And by the way, I've used that that line about being fully baked, and it does not go over in in an addiction talk. And I can say why. (laughs) I made that metaphor once, and I was like, yeah, that didn't... (laughs) didn't go over too well, you know. Um, but the the reality is, and, and the, the statistics, if you look at the statistics, you know, if your kid starts drinking or taking drugs in middle school, then they have a very high chance mm-hmm. of having substance use disorder in adulthood. And if you, it, with each year that goes by, that risk goes down and down and down into the point where we're near down nearly like 10% if we can get them up into their, you know, up to the point where they're at legal age. And the nice thing about that is that there are so many things we can do along the way. And, you know, as someone who's been in recovery for a long time, you know, the serenity prayer is part of sort of the way I think, which is, you know, give me the strength to change the things, to know the things I cannot change and change the whatever, change the things I can. There's a lot I can't control about my kid. But research is really clear that even once our kids are in college, we are still an influence on the way they think. And not just because of our words, but mostly because of the way we've modeled behavior for them. And, you know, for my kids, my students, my kids in the rehab, um, many of them were going home to a home where substance use was normal. And so I, it's so, it was so hard for me to send them home because, you know, I don't know what chance they have if substance abuse is normalized in their household. But along those same lines, if, and I'm not saying that parents can't drink, you know, or use drugs and that sort of stuff, because for adults, especially around, for example, marijuana use, you know, there's a ton of risks to kids, especially around the hippocampus and short-term memory that just sort of go away. There isn't as much risk to adults as there is for kids. And um, it's just a matter of waiting until the, the risk level goes down. And and that honestly is the conversation I keep having with my 17-year-old, which is, it is so hard for you. You know those times when you come into the kitchen and you stand there in front of the refrigerator and you say, wait a second, why am I in this room? What did I come in here for? That's all short-term memory, hippocampus, working memory stuff. And that's 
that is where the receptors for the active ingredients in marijuana are. And it messes with that area. So mm -hmm. if you want that to get worse, or, and we talk about the fact that my husband smoked a lot of pot when he was um, in college. And he says for sure he knows that it affected his short-term memory. And unfortunately, there were a lot of things he needed to memorize um, in graduate school. And he could tell that his short-term memory had gone downhill. And mm -hmm. that was in his early 20s. So, you know, having these honest conversations with kids, we don't have to be perfect ourselves. My husband drinks, I don't. But on the other hand, he models for my kids a sense of caring for my situation because he doesn't leave alcohol open in the house. So if he doesn't finish a can of beer or doesn't finish a bottle of wine, it goes down the drain because he just doesn't want to put me in that position. And that's about having a healthy relationship where people make accommodations for each other. And that's also teaching my kids about healthy, sharing, giving relationships. Mm -hmm. So the modeling stuff, is you know this, the modeling stuff is so important. It's so important. It's great. We'll be right back after this quick break. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. All right, so I'm going to ask you one last typical interview 
interviewer question. Um, (laughs) You know, for listeners, what is kind of one thing, if this is really landing with them and they're like, I just want to be sure that I take a step today or I, you know, take away that I can leave this conversation armed with, um, what's one thing you want to make sure that they kind of know about the power they have um, with their child's relationship with drugs and alcohol? I remember um, when I, I was just reading the audiobook this past week and rediscovering stuff. I don't know if there are many writers in the audience, but you do sometimes have this amnesia about what you wrote and you come back to it and you're like, oh, wow, I wrote that. <laughs> uh, or I, I didn't realize I included that. And that is that, number one, our kids are listening. Number two, our kids are watching. And number three, that even as our kids individuate, even as our adolescents pull away from us, they are still listening. And the key is going to be finding ways to talk to them that allows them to relate and makes them want to be a part of the conversation. And then the fun part, that's fun. Like there's a whole chapter in this book about the fact that we get precious little of our kids' attention and time. And so I was trying to find ways to get it back. And so one of the ways I did that was by creating a dinner that was around this this game, this this interview show called Hot Ones, which is about a guy, Sean uh, Evans, who interviews people while they eat hot wings. And we love that show. We've seen almost every episode of that show. And so I created an entire dinner. It was a secret where I ordered all of the hot wings sauces from a particular season. And I went and got unseasoned hot wings and some vegan wings and made all the wings and laid them out on a um, on a tray. And my husband and I came up with, as Sean Evans does, a question for each wing. And the questions were not... Um, overly invasive. It was, we didn't want to like, you know, rip their guts out with the questions, but we wanted to just know about how their brains worked and what they were thinking about. And um, so it was one of, it's going to be, I think, one of my favorite memories from our lives together. And we spent two and a half, three hours eating wings and drinking milk. And then we ran out of milk and we started once they got hotter, we moved on to uh, basically liquid vanilla ice cream, which really worked well because these things get really hot. (laughs) And I learned so much about not just facts about my kids' lives, but how they think. And it showed them that I was willing to come to them to where they are Mm -hmm. and on their terms and with things that interest them. And I wasn't asking about grades and I wasn't asking about like, what college do you want to go to? Or, you know, that sort of stuff. I was asking about stuff that really mattered. Like uh, one of the questions was about which of their grandparents do they really see attributes in them? How, what grandparent do they think re- they resemble the most? And that led to like a half an hour long conversation mm-hmm. about not just what the kids said, but what other people's perceptions were of that kid. And it led to a conversation about what we admire in their grandparents. It was really cool. Mm-hmm. And so that idea of, We may feel like they're not listening. We may feel like they don't want to talk to us. We may feel like we're getting separated by age and distance and all the other stuff and and interests, but there are ways to get there on their uh, their plane and talk to them about the things they care about. And I remember distinctly a bunch of years ago when my older son was first going into high school and there was this great panel. I talked about this in Gift of Failure. There was a panel discussion where students were talking to parents of incoming freshmen about how to be as supportive as possible during freshman year, which is a really difficult year for some kids. And one parent asked that question, what is the, what is the one thing I, you wish your parents had done to really support you during freshman year? And they all basically said, we really do want to talk to our parents. We really, really do. 
we just don't want to talk to them about the stuff they want to talk about all the time. Sometimes we just want to talk about the stuff that interests us without feeling judged, without feeling like someone's going to say, oh, that's stupid or, oh, that's not relevant to a future business degree or whatever. Um, so finding ways to to get there and mm-hmm. be able to talk to kids in a way that's not judgmental and is supportive and on their level, I think is the big takeaway. I mean, I think before you even start this book, the fact that you're picking this book up means you're thinking about substance use. And so honestly, thinking about your own substance use, if you're at all concerned about your own use, I, I think it's going to be really important for you to confront that. And, you know, we're seeing that in the media a lot, just, you know, a couple um Chrissy Teigen just read Holly Whitaker's Drink Like a Woman and, you know, decided to get sober because not because she felt like she had a real problem, but because she just didn't like her relationship to alcohol. And I think it's I'm so grateful for this, that it's becoming normalized to have like dry January to take a little bit of a breather and reassess our relationship to substances. That's something I think it's going to be important to do before you even start to think about how you're going to talk to your kids about their use. Mm, So good. And I'm really glad you shared the hot wings story. I loved reading that. (laughs) I loved it. And oh my gosh, it was so much fun. It sounds like it. And what it really underscored for me and, and also what you just shared is that ultimately, and this also comes through when they get to failure, this is about having respectful relationships with our kids. Like that is really the key. Because without that, respect without that connection, they're just going to shut us down and and just not be available. Yeah. A bunch of years ago when I was, well, when I was doing all this speaking, when the world was, we were allowed to do that stuff. I did a lot of talking about my now 17 year old when he was like 14, he got really into crystals, like not like geology crystals, but like the metaphysics and like the cleansing and the auras and all that sort of stuff. And you know, from my academic perspective, I was kind of like, oh my gosh, really crystals. But I I was like, okay, teach me about crystals. I don't know anything about crystals. And he started traveling with me and we started going to crystal shops. And I was thinking about it the other day, crystals, the interest in crystals came out of an interest in aliens. Like most young kids are like to think about aliens and stuff. And then the crystals things happen. And then the crystals turned into this, um, this other thing, which turned into a music thing, which turned into the fact that now at 17, he is all in on digital music production. And I can trace the trajectory of those interests because they are connected and you know how kids tend to go all in on one thing. Sometimes it's sometimes you you have to have respect for that thing they're going all in on, even if you don't believe in it yourself necessarily, because it may lead to the next thing. And I remember at a gift of failure talk, a dad, a, a very religious conservative dad, said, "I'm scared to death. How do I talk to my kid about the fact that she's exploring things I really don't want her exploring right now?" And this was a high school age kid. Um, And this was in a very religious place. And um, I said that actually her exploring stuff that makes you uncomfortable is an incredible starting place to not only support her and show that you respect her and support her interests, but it can strengthen her perspective on your religion because asking questions and asking questions wasn't a really big, strong point of this particular religion, but... um, if you support her in asking questions, you're going to show that you respect her and you're going to show that you respect her intelligence and her seeking and that in the end, doing the opposite, which is, you know, disregarding this interest and telling her to just not do it is going to drive a wedge in your relationship. And that will probably be more likely 
to separate you from her and her from her religion, but giving some support to that seeking could actually strengthen your relationship and help her understand why you feel your faith is so strong and so important to you and could bring you and her closer to her faith. So, you know, I really think that supporting kids as they're doing searching is one of the most, it's the biggest gifts we can give kids. Mm, So good. What a wonderful note to end on. Jess, I'm so grateful for this conversation and um, I'm excited for your book and it's really powerful and I encourage listeners to check it out. Um, check out the show notes pages. Um, Jess, where can listeners connect with you? You are super active on Twitter, but how can listeners learn more? Everything is at Jessica Leahy, dot com, And then, yes, I'm over at Twitter a lot because um, as a profession, teachers are some of the largest, biggest users of Twitter. And teacher Twitter is fantastic Twitter. I love teacher Twitter. And um, I'm on Instagram at, at Teacher Leahy. So at Jess Leahy on Twitter, at Teacher Leahy on Instagram. And the book comes out April 6th. And hopefully I'll bombard you from all sides on where to get the book. But um, And I also got to re- do, as I said, I got to do the um, audiobook again, which for me is one of my favorite parts of the process. So the book will be available on audio as well. It'll be everywhere you can find books, I hope. So exciting. Well, congratulations. And, Thank you. Um, and I believe actually... This episode, even though we're recording it in January, I have it slated to come out on your book birthday. So I'm going to say a happy early book birthday. Thank you. (laughs) You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. For the show notes for this episode, visit tiltparenting.com slash podcast and search for this conversation. If you like what you heard on today's episode, I would be grateful if you could take a minute to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a review. Thank you so much for helping us stay visible so people who would benefit from the show can easily find it. If you want to support the show and help me cover the cost of production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. To support the show, just visit patreon.com slash tiltparenting. Lastly, if you aren't already part of the online community at Tilt, I invite you to sign up at tiltparenting.com on the box in the bottom where it says join the revolution. Every Thursday, I send out a short email with a quick note from me, a link to that week's podcast episode, and links to five stories from the news that week that are relevant to parents like us. Again, you can sign up and learn more about Tilt at www.tiltparenting.com. Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it, life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you listen to your podcasts.